Well, we are um, going through our, our book of Acts here, like I said. Let me pray for us, and then we will get started. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be together uh, as a church family and to study this, uh, this wonderful book. Uh, God, as we conclude kind of our, our study of the book the, today, I pray, God, that uh, you would help us um, to see the big picture of what you are doing, what you're about, uh, even how we got here today to, to where, you're, where you're taking us and uh, what you'll be uh, doing in and through us. And so uh, we pray you guide and lead us, and Lord, most, most importantly, as always, um, we pray that, uh, that you'll be lifted up and worshiped and that, God, we would see uh, Jesus today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it... Uh, when I started off the book of Acts, I told you kind of it took three decades. Um, it only took three crucial decades in world history. And that's really all it took for really the world to be turned upside down. That's really what the book of Acts is about. Uh, in the years between AD 33 and AD 68, a new movement was born. And that's just in just 30 plus years, the largest the religion the world has ever known um, was birthed. And what began with a, with a dozen men and maybe a half dozen uh, women following Jesus would result in over 35 million followers of Jesus within 300 years and over 60% of the population of the world. And, uh, and hundreds of millions of lives would be changed. And it wouldn't just be lives. I mean, cultures would be changed, civilizations, uh, education, medicine, about every field would be radically transformed and affected by the very gospel that's being proclaimed. And so the book of Acts, as we have seen, is a story about how the church got started, how Christianity got started. And it's a story of how, how the followers of Jesus took the great commission to go make disciples into, into the Gospel of Matthew and went and took that command that Jesus gave them and interpreted that as go plant churches. And they did. You read the rest of the New Testament after the book of Acts, you can get into Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and all the, all the others there. Uh, you know that, notice that those are, they may sound like strange names to you if you've never read the Bible. Those are names of churches in cities, in, in towns and communities that were planted in the book of Acts. Okay? That's what all of those letters uh, are from. And it's important you understand the story is not what uh, the, the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is not a story of what individual apprentices did for Jesus necessarily, but more of how the spirit of Jesus worked in and through local churches to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here's how it got started. As we pick up the book of Acts, Jesus has risen from the grave. He has been with his followers for uh, about 40 days. He is about to ascend to one day uh, return, and it goes on to reiterate the very great commission that he gave his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, and here's how he put it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're not familiar with those geographical regions, you got Jerusalem as the center Outside of that, you got Judea as a larger geographical area, and Samaria is like the neighboring town or city, as it were, and then the ends of the earth. And that's really the outline for the entire book of Acts. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 that we've seen already, we saw the very first church planted. It, what was it, what's it called? The Jerusalem church. It was the first one. And we caught a glimpse of this end of the earth thing in Acts chapter 2 when we saw the kind of gospel hit a very diverse community of people, right? Remember all the different languages at, the, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? We started to see, okay, the gospel is going to go further than just Jerusalem. 
When we get to chapter 7 and 8, uh, we, we, we see the gospel break out of Jerusalem, and it gets into Judea and even Samaria. And again, we catch a glimpse of it going even further than that with uh, Philip's interaction with an Ethiopian who comes to Jesus and goes back to Ethiopia. And traditionally, we understand churches were planted there, right, as a result of, of that interaction. Then we fast forward to 9 through 12, where we've been the last month or so. And we saw the gospel spread outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria by seeing the second church ever planted. Okay, there was Jerusalem church. The second one is called the church at Antioch or Antioch Church. And that's modern day, if you're looking at a map, like where's Antioch? Modern day Turkey would be where that is. Okay, that's the second ever church ever planted was, in the, was now the country of Turkey. And again, we, we catch a glimpse of it going even further than that. We see Cornelius' conversion, right? He was a Roman. Um, he, was, uh, he was a soldier. We see the vision of Peter, right? Uh, remember the whole vision of the, the blanket and the food, the picnic table of uh, like bacon wrap, pork tenderloin or something, go eat it. Um, I thought of that the other day. I was at Costco, and I literally saw a bacon wrap, pork tenderloin, and I thought of Peter and his vision. I did. That's like uh, that's my, my, my connection there. It's like, go eat bacon. And so it was basically a vision to say, hey, um, we're going to take the gospel outside of, of, of the Jewish circle, right? We're going to go to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people. We're going to go all the way to the ends of the earth. And so for the first time there in Acts 10, we see the world, the world is about to see a religion that was truly supernatural, transcultural, beyond borders. And, and so now we have two, church, two churches planted. We have Jerusalem Church, Antioch Church, from which millions more would be planted and all started in Acts chapter 13, our text today. But again, it's important you know that the rest of the book of Acts isn't about the individual apprentices going out on their missionary journeys. That's a lot of times how you can think about it. It's all about Paul and his missionary journeys. It's about churches, okay? It's about churches being planted. Paul did help get those started, but that's really what it's all about. He would go to an area, a community, a city. He'd plant a church. He'd raise up leaders, and then he would move on to another location to plant more. And then that church would go plant some more, and you get this kind of growth happening, the gospel spreading. That's how it worked. And so it's about churches planted in specific geographical regions so that disciples are made, right? That's what Jesus said, right? Go make what? Disciples. Not necessarily converts, that's all part of it, but disciples, followers of Jesus. And those are made in local churches. The people are raised up and discipled and become more like Jesus and sent out like Jesus in local churches, uh, I was meeting with the deacons this week, and we're going through a, a very small little booklet, really. It's called Understanding the Great Commission by a guy named Mark Devers, a pastor in Washington, D.C. And he made the following statement that was really good. He said this. He said, the Great Commission does not call churches to act like professional sports teams. He went on to say this. He says, a team, a professional sports team, will try to hire the best players, build the best facilities, and optimize its coaching staff all to win its league's top trophy. He said, sure, a team is glad that other teams exist. Without them, there would be no league. But its main goal is to beat those other teams. He says, now, I, I doubt very many, if any, churches explicitly think of themselves like we have to beat the other churches, right? Most people aren't sitting there thinking that, but we kind of act like that, right? Many churches kind of act like we're in competition with the other churches to be better churches than their churches or do better services than they, they, they do and get more people moving from that church to this church and transfer to that one. And all we're doing is just sharing the same group of people, right, over and over and over again. And we're not actually fulfilling the Great Commission by going out. He gave these diagnostic questions in his book to serve as a test. And I thought these were really good questions. 
of do we have the our team is best kind of approach to, to mission and ministry, Here, here's what he gave. He says, do you happily give away your best players to other churches? He said, do you rejoice after praying for revival that revival comes to the church down the street? He said, do you pray regularly for the church down the street as well as other churches in your city? And he gave one more. He says, do you give any portion of your budget to revitalizing old or raising up new churches in your city around the nation or abroad? Parkside, we should want and desire gospel growth within our own walls. We should want that. So that's healthy. That's, that's a good thing. But we also should want that for every single church around us. Because the more healthy churches there are, the more gospel-preaching churches there are, guess what? The more people are going to hear about Jesus, right? We have to duplicate ourselves, and we've got to help other people do the same. We should not be satisfied with just our own health, but want many other healthy gospel-preaching churches. We should be happy, uh, as happy, he talks about in the book, about a new gospel-preaching church in town as we are about a new restaurant opening in the land of starvation. You're like, great, more food. This is good. They need that. Too many churches lose sight of the gospel, and church planting, and miss the entire Great Commission and purposes for which they exist. Um, I may mean, have shared the story before, but there was a book by a guy named Richard Lovelace uh, called uh, 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 Dynamics of What Was It Called? Dynam- Dynamics of Spiritual Life. It's on my shelf there, and uh, it's written back in the '70s as a kind of crit- critique of the church in the 1970s. Right? Not, things haven't changed that much in the church since then. But he kind of gave this kind of picture. He talks about the world in that book as being like a, a lake. If you've ever been to a lake, right? The, the main part of the lake. And in each of these individual coves that you turn, in, turn off onto the lake, there are local churches down those coves. That's how he gives the example. He says, and in the world, they kind of turn, they see the cove, and they go, well, that seems interesting. I might want to hear what they're talking about. And they kind of turn down the cove, and what they witness many times, instead of hearing the gospel, what they witness is local churches on both sides of the cove chucking rocks at each other, Right? We, we do worship better than they do. Come see us, right? We do, we do theology better than they do. Come see us, right? We serve the poor better than they do. Come see us. Meanwhile, the, the world out there, right, the lost, are turning the boat around. They're like, we're going back, we're going back into the main lake here. We're not going down those coves. That, that, that sounds ridiculous. I don't want anything to do with it, right? And that's kind of a similar assessment in the Western, especially in America, kind of church. And so I remember uh, planting a church in, in Los Angeles, and, um, and keep in mind, we were like downtown LA. There wasn't a lot of us doing that because that's kind of a crazy idea to do anyway. Um, but the other thing was it wasn't a lot of churches, uh, b- uh, gospel preaching churches in Los Angeles. There were a lot of Scientology buildings, which were interesting. Um, there was a, uh, a lot of Christian science buildings, which were kind of like grape nuts. You guys remember grape nuts? That kind of dates me a little bit. I don't think they make grape nuts anymore. But you ever ate grape nut cereal? It's not grapes, it's not nuts. Christian scientists aren't Christian, they aren't scientists either, right? <laughs> Kind of a strange name. Um, but anyway, we were, uh, we were planting a church, and we were two years old. We were already outgrown our one space. We were in the Michael Jackson Auditorium, which was covered up at the time, because Michael Jackson's name wasn't very popular at the time. But uh, that's where we were meeting as a church, and we were outgrowing that space. We were about 200 to 225, and there was this church in the middle of Hollywood called Hollywood Baptist Church. Beautiful facility, seats 700 people. I'm like, I'm going to go talk to them and see if we can, you know... Get together, right? We merge together. We can get together on this one. We, our beliefs are very similar. I was, you know, the belief system of the church is really good. So I went in one Sunday morning. I had been trained up kind of leaders and, and pastors, and I had one of the guys I've been training kind of preach for me, and I went on Sunday morning. I was like, this is the best time to meet him. I go in, publish time. I sit down in the front row, and I'm sitting there, 
and there's nobody there. And I'm thinking, like, maybe there's, like, a church retreat or something this Sunday. And about 10 minutes after it's supposed to start, another lady comes in and sits beside me. It's just two of us, two. And uh, I'm sitting there, and um, out from behind the stage comes a guy with his guitar. And he gets up there, and he starts playing and singing. And he looks. If we're sitting there, he's looking back back there. And he's singing, telling everybody to stand up. And I'm, and I'm just looking around going like, what is going on at this place? This is so strange. He sings his songs, never looks at the two of us. And then he sits down and then the pastor comes up and starts to preach and looks again, never looks at us, looks out and preaches to an imaginary audience out there uh, in the church. So afterwards I came up to him, I go, hey, um, we're like, we're a pretty new church in town, but two years old, like we, our beliefs are similar. We like, we love the gospel together. This is great. Like maybe we could join forces. Like we could, we could be together. And he proceeded to basically criticize me in some ways and say, look, we've got this. This is our, this is our space. This is our city. We got this and we're reaching people. And I'm thinking, it was two of us here. Um, how is this? It was like a gang. I felt I was going to get shot. It was like gang territory. Like you're on our turf. Like you shouldn't be there. And I'm like, man, churches do not work together like that, right? They should be working together for the gospel, not working against each other and trying to compete with one another, especially when you believe the same. No, we need to be a great commission church that looks to get the gospel out, see disciples made through planting churches locally and globally. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts teaches us, right? Um, that's how the great commission of Jesus is fulfilled through local churches. And so in our passage today, we're going to find what I call the Great Commission Church is started. And, uh, and what, what is a Great Commission Church? It's a sending church, it's a serving church, and it's a suffering church. And those are the three things we'll look at. And that template, because we're going to finish Acts today, will serve as a template for the rest of the book of Acts. And I encourage you to read the rest, and you'll see these three characteristics, right? You'll see a sending church. Constantly being sent out, constantly new churches being planted. And you're going to see a serving church where they're serving the community, answering their questions. And we're going to see a suffering church on every single page in the book of Acts. And that's how the gospel went forward. All right? So let's look at those. Number one, uh, a Great Commission church is a sending church. A sending church. So you see in the first three verses there of Acts 13, um, you'll see, uh, you see there the, the, the churches in Antioch. They have prophets, it says in verse 1. And teachers, and it begins to list all the different people, and it says, while they were worshiping, verse 2, um, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them, and then after praying and fasting, laid hands on them, and they sent them off. So, while the evangelistic efforts in Samaria and Antioch, and with people like Cornelius and the Ethiopian, were not necessarily planned, if you've noticed that in the first kind of half of Acts, a lot of it was accidental, <laughs> It wasn't like they were planning to meet the people or, or strategizing to engage certain areas. They just, they were running for their lives. Remember, remember I've talked to you about this, that how it's very probable, at least humanly speaking, that the gospel never would have gotten outside of Jerusalem if persecution hadn't happened. Remember in, in Acts 7, we had Stephen who was stoned to death, and the result of that was Saul and his henchmen chasing down all the, the members of the church and the Christians and really putting them in prison and death. And they scattered. They went everywhere. Matter of fact, uh, listen, Acts 8.1 says this. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Look, how, look specifically at that verse. They were scattered where? In Judea and Samaria. What did Acts 1.8 say? They were supposed to be, they were supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. There they go, right? 
they weren't playing on that. They weren't trying to go there. They were pushed that way because of persecution. And then listen to this, Acts 11. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution, okay, there's the church being scattered everywhere, uh, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. Now, notice those Cyprus uh, it was one of the leaders of the church. Uh, people from Cyprus were here in uh, Acts 13 as one of the leaders of the church. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there was some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So we find the churches, the, the churches are being planted. Churches are starting uh, in that way. And they were really accidental. But now it begins to be on purpose. They begin to strategize. They begin to send out people to very specific locations to see churches Planted. Now, how did the church at Antioch get to this point, right? What moved them to be ascending church? We see the Spirit of God speak to them and tell them to, to set apart Barnabas and Saul, but what was happening in that group? And I want to notice a couple things that made them ascending church. One is they, uh, they had a team approach. You notice that, right, at the beginning of chapter 13. There's this whole list of names. And notice that it, says, it uses the terms uh, prophets and teachers there in 13.1, most commentators would argue that that is actually um, served as a functional kind of elder pastor team, okay, uh, that we'll see later on the rest of Acts. Like read Acts 20, you'll see a pastoral team there or elder team. Uh, those terms are interchangeable. And so much like we saw in Acts 6, we saw these servants. You remember Acts 6? They were serving the community. They were serving the widows. That that servant group later on becomes the deacons in the local church. So this group of teachers and prophets in the, in, the, uh, in the early church later become the pastoral team as the, as the book of Acts unrolls and the New Testament uh, unfolds. And so, um, and so this was always Paul's MO. This is what he always did. After he'd plant a church, he would quickly establish a leadership team, disciple people, point them to Jesus, teach them, and he would, he would raise up leaders. And there would be a pastoral team uh, to lead those churches. We saw this in our study uh, in the book of Titus a few years ago, we were changing kind of some of our church polity and things that, and how we kind of do things. And you remember that time we moved from kind of that senior pastor model, maybe CEO kind of model where there's one guy kind of leading the church to a pastoral team of guys leading, uh, leading the church, whether they be paid or not paid, right? They're all equal and working together like Lynn's up here today with me. We're, we're both the same. We're both pastors. I'm not better than him or anything else, right? We're, we're both pastors on equal standing. And so it's not, uh, not the pastor and his minions doing his bidding, but a pastoral team. Matter of fact, go all the way to the end of the passage that was read today, Acts 14, verse 23, and I want you to see it's exactly what happens. When they had appointed what? Elders. Again, if you're new with us, elders, pastors, you may be used to hearing the word pastor, not elders. Elders, pastors are interchangeable terms, just different hats kind of being worn by the same group of guys. It says he appointed elders for them in every church, that was the model. Prayer, prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. This is what happened all the time with Paul in the New Testament. He'd go plant a church, establish a pastoral team. You know what he would do? He would even say things, I think it's like Acts 16, where he would say, that region has been reached for Christ, and he would move on to the next one. You're like, there's no way everybody heard Jesus in that region. But he understood that if he planted a church and that they established pastoral team, that church is going to reach that region. We're going to go to the next one, Right? Because that's, that's healthy. That's going to keep the, the, the vision and the mission moving forward is a team approach. And so sometimes, sometimes, at least at the start, there is only one pastor, right? Um, like a Paul or a Timothy or a Titus. 
But it's always the goal of a pastor in each local church to develop other men to be pastors alongside of them. Right? That's what we have striven to do here and have done uh, at, at Parkside. Now, notice this group, Acts 13. Notice the group is, is pretty diverse, actually. And understand, they reflected the demographics of the place that they were at. Antioch, where they are located, was kind of a melting pot of sorts. Lots of different groups of people from different parts of the world. Uh, you'll see listed there, you got Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. That was a, an island off the kind of Greek coast. There's a lot of blue-collar work there. You think of an island, you may think of like tropical in Hawaii or something. That's not what Cyprus was. There's a lot of farming, actually of corn, ironically enough, I found out. A lot of mining of minerals. Um, those kind of things were happening on, on Cyprus. We have uh, a guy named Simeon and Lucius who are from north-central Africa, so a different, whole different continent here. Uh, it's actually possible, and I think this is really interesting. We don't know this for sure, but this one guy, Simeon, some commentators believe, and I tend to believe this is a case too, is actually the same Simon of Cyrene, same location. If you remember Simon of Cyrene in the Gospels, what he did, he was the one that carried Jesus' cross, that actually is the same guy, right? Here he is, here he is now as a pastor um, and, uh, of a local church. Then we have uh, um, Manian, who was either part of or close to the royal family. He was a member of kind of the upper class kind of group. And then we have Saul, who's like a former rabbi, turned hitman, as we've seen, turned follower of Jesus, right? So this, this group is really diverse. I mean, it is a very broad group of people, but they represented the congregation. And despite their differences, they had one thing in common, right? Their love for Jesus and their love for the gospel. And this team approach resulted in the gospel going forward and churches planted. This was always the approach. It's one of the many reasons why uh, we changed our polity here to a pastoral-led team. Because many times, unfortunately, when there's only one person, one guy leading the church, the church can tend to take on his identity. And the, the, the ego has a way of inflating <laughs> and has a way of keeping and not giving, Right? Uh, has a way of like, we're going to build this empire. We're going to build, build this on here. A lot of us uh, pastors have been listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is fascinating. I was actually in the middle of all of that because I used to be part of Acts 29. So I, I, I know the kind of the, the story of that, but it's, it's kind of a, a principle of when one person is kind of at the top and it's built on ego, how, how it can be completely destroyed, how a church of 10,000 plus can go down to zero and completely stop existing because of one person. Um, leading the charge in that way. And so it's important that you have a team approach, which is what they had here, uh, where you check each other, you make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing, and you continue to preach the gospel, and you continue to plant churches. That's why you have a team approach. The second thing they had was not just a team approach, they had a, a prayerful approach. Notice the routine of the team. They were worshiping, they were praying, they were fasting together. It's very possible uh, that they were not necessarily doing this in order to um, ask God to plant where their next church plant's going to go, they were just worshiping Jesus, right? That's what they were doing. They were reflecting on him. The most natural reading of this passage is that they were not in a special season of prayer, nor were they specifically or deliberately necessarily planning for the mission. Rather, they were just going about their routine. This is what they did. They met together. They worshiped Jesus together. They studied the Bible together. They prayed together. And they saw, saw God lead them through that kind of focus, you see, when a pastoral team is focused on Jesus and worship, they will find Jesus leading them to plant churches. <laughs> 
That's how it works. Why? Because that's what, because when, you, when you're actually focused on Jesus, you become like Jesus. And when you become like Jesus, you get the heart of Jesus. And you know what the heart of Jesus was? To go, to go reach the lost, to go to the ends of the earth, right? That's what happens. And so, uh, so it's important to do that. When a church or a pastoral team cease to focus on the gospel, they tend to turn inward and insulated from the world around them. And they tend to focus on their own kind of issues, maybe their own problems, even their own ministries, um, become more like professionals than necessarily pastors. But when a pastoral team prioritizes the gospel, focuses on worship, they will be pastors who lead the church on mission because they'll be consumed with the heart of Jesus who is, came not to be served but to serve, right? And give his life a ransom for many. Lastly, number three, they had a, I call an open-handed approach. This is super, super important. An open-handed approach, not closed. Closed-handed approach is like, this is mine, I'm keeping it, right? Open-handed is like, all right, Jesus, if you want it, you can have it kind of thing, right? It's an open-handed approach. I mentioned uh, at the introduction there about uh, Mark Dever's book, he gave those diagnostic questions. One of them was, do you happily give away your best players to other churches? And that's exactly what's happening at the church in Antioch, right? Think about how valuable, can you imagine how valuable it would have been to have like Paul in your church? That'd been pretty nice, right? <laughs> like the Apostle Paul is like your pastor. Like, yeah, it probably doesn't get much better than that, right? Uh, and Barnabas as well. These two guys were probably the top, you know, top two guys, as it were, gifted and all of that. And that's, but see, that's what we see happening here. These guys were, these guys were like, um, to use a baseball term, they were like leadoff and cleanup hitter, right? You know what baseball is? It's like the first hitter and the fourth hitter, like the two most important guys in the lineup, right? That's, they were the important, important guys. And this would have been a huge hit to this church uh, in Antioch to lose them. But guess what happens? If you read the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of church history, the Antioch church didn't just survive without Paul and Barnabas when they sent them out. They thrived. Matter of fact, they, they continued to plant churches without those two guys, right? And they, even though they sent Paul and Barnabas out. See, a great commission church is only, going, is only going to send folks when they hold each person in the church, no matter, no matter their position or value, with an open hand. If church planting is the most effective way of reaching the loss, and it is, and reaching the loss is the highest calling of the church, and it is, then having an open-handed approach to everyone is vital because even though it may hurt to send someone out, like a Pastor Eddie to Costa Rica, for example, it will result in more people coming to know Jesus around the world, and it's worth it then, right? We have to be careful. We don't idolize not just individuals in the church, meaning we can't go on without them, but that we don't idolize the church in general. It's probably, it's probably that, um, it's probable that when it says they sent them off, that it actually is the whole entire church affirming this idea, right? The whole church held uh, the church and the people in the church with an open hand. The church itself can become an idol to Christians. Sounds strange, but we can totally make it that. We idolize our rhythms, right? Our people, our way, our buildings, our ministries, our classes, our comfort, even our name. We ran into that one some years ago. I mean, if Parkside is going to be a Great Commission church, as outlined in the book of Acts, then, then we have to be a sending church. It takes a team approach, peripheral approach, open-handed approach to people and, our, and our, even our own, our own church. Number two, another characteristic. It's not just a sending church. A Great Commission church is a sending church. Number two, it's a serving church. Now, in chapter 14, beginning in verse 8, We'll pick up there. Now, when I say a serving church, I mean two things. Number one, it tangibly serves the, to meet the needs of those around them, but also serves to clarify the gospel, answer questions, and defend the truth of the gospel in its specific location. 
I told you to use the illustration before that both of these are like two wings of the plane of the church, right? You got to have both wings. One wing, you're going to spiral down, right? You need both wings of the plane of the church to, to fly well. One wing is preaching. One wing is service. You can put this another way. One wing is gospel proclamation. One is called gospel neighboring, right? We're serving people. One is rescuing. One's restoring. One's mission. One's mercy. One's evangelism. One's compassion. One's word. One's deed. One's truth. One's grace, right? This is the comp- These are the two wings. You've got to have both of them um, as a local church. And so let's look at both of those. They had them here. We see this happening. The first was kind of this gospel neighboring. Look down at verse 8. Uh, they get to Lystra, and we find a man sitting there who could not use his feet. We find Paul speaking, preaching. He's listening. Paul heals the man. He gets up and begins to walk there down in verse 10. So we find Paul now. Now he's called Paul from here on out in the, in, in the uh, book of Acts. He's, they, he changed his name from Saul to Paul um, in that way. And uh, he's with Barnabas, and they're in that modern-day kind of Turkey area. And it's the, this is the first of what you've been in your, um, in your Sunday school classes. You've been going through the missionary journeys of Paul. Okay, this is the first missionary journey of three where he goes around to different areas and sees churches planted or encourages churches that have been planted. And so we find it seems from the passage that the first thing Paul did when he got to a city was he would do this. When he got get to a city, he would just notice, right? He would just study. He was a student. You get to Acts 17, for example. He walks into Athens and he starts studying like, okay, you got all these, these kind of idols and these temples and this worship. Oh, there's an unknown God. Okay, I got it. How about I tell you about the unknown God, right? I mean, he would go into a city and would kind of study it, learn, understand the kind of rhythms, vibe, the understanding. What do they believe? What do they understand? And that's what he would do. And so here we find that he's looking, he sees a guy who is hurting, so he heals him. Um, as I told you before, the, the, to be that person's position, it wasn't just a hard life due to his medical condition, but in that culture, there was all, it was, you were socially an outcast because of it, you couldn't work because of it, so no income. It was a very lonely existence to be someone in this condition. And so we find that the healing would not just allow him to walk and be able to move his feet and run, uh, but also to work and to be part of society again. So this, this healing was really, really important, not just for the physical part of it. And so as you read through Acts, we see this constant approach to helping those in need and preaching the gospel. This was modeled after Jesus. Acts 10, verse 38, when Peter was kind of presenting the gospel to Cornelius and his house member and all the people that were there, he talked about Jesus this way. He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That was a big part of Jesus' ministry. You can't get away, you can't miss that if you read the Gospels. That was a big part of his ministry was serving loving people. Uh, We're going to get into the book of Galatians next Sunday. And uh, and so if you get into Galatians, we find in in Galatians 2, we find this was kind of Paul's approach. 2, 9 through 10, it says, when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, this is Paul speaking, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles, right? So we're going we're gonna to go out. We're, they're going to stay with the Jewish people. We're going to go to the Gentiles. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So he said, hey, when you go out and you're preaching, it's not just preaching the gospel. You're going to serve people too. You see that? There's those both wings of the plane are super important to maintain. And so the Great Commission Church will always do this gospel neighboring where they seek to love their neighbors as they love themselves. It's exactly what Jesus taught. And they would not leave the gospel behind, though, as we will see. They will always seek to serve and love those around them as well as proclaim the gospel. So we see this happening. Number two, gospel proclamation. So starting at verse 11, 
It's kind of a strange story, right? They get to the city, they get mistaken for some Greek gods. <laughs> People are trying to, the priest even gets in on it. They're trying to sacrifice animals to them. They're worshiping them. And, you know, they have to like try everything they can to stop them from doing this. It's a very interesting thing there. But we find Paul and Barnabas doing this gospel proclamation. And we find here that it wasn't just necessarily just like soapbox preaching. I mean, they set up a little stand and started preaching in the city. They tried to explain. They tried to answer questions. And this, this bizarre response is, is, is kind of strange, but it's also understandable. They had temples to Zeus and Hermes. They were tremendously superstitious people. They called Barnabas Zeus. He was kind of the supreme god of the Greek pantheon. And then called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, it says. And there was a legend, just so you understand the background, there was a legend this didn't happen, but legend nonetheless that people believed happened, that, uh, that the supreme god Zeus and his son Hermes, that was the two of them, uh, they visited this city one time, and they were said to have disguised themselves as mere mortal, mortals seeking shelter. And according to the legend, there was one elderly couple that welcomed these two, these gods, with the result their house was magically transformed into a temple and them into priests. But then the gods proceeded to go back out into the city to everybody who didn't welcome them and destroy their homes and the people, all right? So that, that's kind of the legend. So when they show up and they do a healing, they don't want to make the same mistake twice, right? So like, they don't just invite Paul and Barnabas into their house. They seek to worship them. Like, we're going to go over the top so that we don't die. So you see, understand, that's kind of their superstition and their themes and what they understand. And so Paul and Barnabas try to stop them, right? And, it, and it's interesting. They don't just say, knock it off they begin to counter their beliefs with the truth of Jesus. And this happens throughout the book of Acts. He counters what they understood, what they believed, started with what they believed, and would begin to proceed from there to give the gospel. They took what they understood. What did they understand? What everybody understands. There is a general understanding of creation. I mentioned it this morning, right? There's a general understanding of God as creator. There is this, this, this is almost impossible, it is impossible, this just came out of nothing, okay? Um, and so there's this general idea of creation, and so he points to this uh, general revelation, to the reality of a creator, and that's where he starts. That's where Paul begins to kind of argue with them. And the gospel makes no sense without a prior recognition of a creator God who in his providence cares for the world, shows kindness, as he says here, by giving rain and crops in their season, and notice, and notice, by the way, that's about as far as they got. Do you see that? That's about as far as they got with the gospel. There's a creator. <laughs> that's it. There's no, there's no Jesus, no cross, no resurrection yet. They didn't get that far. And that's okay. Sometimes, you know, you talk about engaging people with the gospel. It takes time. And there's steps to that. You're not going to usually get down and be like, all right, Romans Road, let's do this, baby. All right, sit down, listen to me go through this. That may happen sometimes, but it, it takes some time to get people to answer their questions, to help them understand each part of the gospel story, which starts with a creator and works its way through um, to, to Jesus and the resurrection. And so we find this. This is kind of, this is interesting because the book of Acts gives us this. It's kind of baby steps sometimes, right? You just kind of take what you have, what's in front of you, answer their questions, start the dialogue, and come back the next day to continue. It's like, uh, what about Bob, right? Baby steps, Baby steps to the elevator. Baby, remember that one? Baby steps. And that's kind of what it was. And so we live in a similar culture to what they lived in because you just use the name God in this culture, that meant all kinds of ideas. And progressively more in our world, you just mentioned God out there in the world, and there's all kinds of ideas of what, who, maybe that is, right? So you have to take some time to define your terms. You got to take some time to define 
who are you talking about? And who is he? And what did he do? And all of those things. And so that's all part of a great commission church is taking time to walk with people. Uh, we have to be patient. We have to serve. We have to answer their questions. We have to keep at it, right? Lastly, number three. So we have a great commission church as a sinning church, a serving church. Number three, a suffering church. Uh, you can't get very far in Acts without seeing this. Verse 19 we find some Jews here came from Antioch, right? That's where the, tr- the original, the second church plant was, right? And uh, they persuaded the crowds who were super fickle. Remember, they were superstitious. They stoned Paul. And stoning means like they didn't take like pebbles and like flick them at him, okay? That's not what stoning means. Stoning was like gigantic rocks that they kind of, ugh, you know, hurled at them um, and tried to, to basically kill them. Dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to, Derb, uh, to Derby. This was quite a term of events. Think about how crazy this was. One minute, Paul is trying to prevent people from worshiping him. Stop it. Knock it off. I'm not what you think I am. I'm not Hermes or whoever these other gods are. I'm Paul. All right, this is who I am. So one minute, he's trying to prevent people from worshiping him. The next minute, he's trying to prevent the same people from killing him. It's, this is a fickle crowd, right? Worship, kill him. Right? That's kind of what's happening. And so they, they were stirred up here, it says, by a Jewish crowd that came from where they were from, up in, um, up in, up, up in Antioch. And apparently, we're trying to get Paul and Barnabas to stop this whole spreading of the gospel thing. Now, this is important because this geographical area, okay, is the same as Galatia, okay? It's the same. We get the book of Galatians, this crowd's going to show up. And they, they get into the church, Try to get people, you know, what, what were they doing? They were trying to get people to, to back away. You needed not just gospel, you need gospel plus something, right? We're good with Jesus, but you need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus plus morals. You need Jesus plus attendance. You need Jesus plus sacrifice and giving. You need all these to be made right with God. You need to add. And the whole book of Galatians is basically Paul saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. <laughs> that's what the whole book of, you know, a theme for Galatians, that's it, right? It is the gospel is you only need Jesus, not plus something else. This group is really mad at Paul for preaching grace, really mad at preaching the gospel, so they persuade this group. And so Paul's stoned. He's dragged out of the city. You say, why did they, why'd they drag him out of the city? Lystra was a Roman colony, and it was, it was illegal to, to stone somebody, like kind of like this, um, um, this kind of vigilante justice kind of thing did not fly in Rome. They had to have a process. There were, there were laws, um, except when the Romans wanted to do it, they could do it, but... But, but the regular people couldn't do that. And so they drag him out because they don't want to get in trouble. So they drag him out of the city, close the gates, and leave him basically thinking he is dead. So we find Paul. He's lying there. No doubt Barnabas, along with some other followers of Jesus, come by. Probably start talking about the next steps, you know, who's going to do the funeral, um, those kind of things, because he looks probably to be dead. And all of a sudden, you can imagine the scene, like Paul kind of takes a deep inhale. You know, it's like, he kind of comes back, he, he coughs up some dust from the rocks that he'd been stoned with, blood probably coming down from his head. And he, he, he shakes all that off, and he proceeds to walk back into the city. And I would love to have been there to see the face of the other disciples, like, okay, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> like, he's like hobbling, and dragging a foot, you know, blood's coming from his head. He's going back in, and he does. And the guys are like, well, I guess this is how it ends. <laughs> Let's go get him. Go. And so he does. They go in there. And, and Paul, I mean, he was beat pretty bad. Matter of fact, at the end of the book of Galatians, he actually says he bears the marks of Jesus. And a part of that marking was the beating that he took here. He had permanent like, damage done to his body. I mean, they thought he was dead. Right? These gigantic rocks being pounded on your head. 
It may have made him a little bit crazy, but in a good way, <laughs> in that way. And so, uh, so they follow him in, and the crazy thing was, it wasn't the end. <laughs> a church is planted in the very city that stoned him, and God used the suffering of his people to bring that about. This is always the way God advances the gospel. It's no wonder that this city changed its tune and listened to what Paul had to say, and a church was planted in that city. Can you imagine being them? The guy you thought you killed returning later that day to tell you more about Jesus? Like, we just killed you for this, and you're back telling us again about him? Okay, I think we should probably listen. <laughs> so they do. And, uh, and, 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 it, and think about it. It was almost like Paul's sheer presence was more effective than 100 sermons he could have preached, right? I mean, that, it was that sheer presence of walking back in, enduring the suffering, taking it on, right? He's embodying literally the gospel, the suffering um, of, of Jesus. And he walks in, and they listen to him this time. And you can't, you can't defeat men and women like this. This is all throughout the book of Acts. You tell them to keep quiet and, about Jesus, and they disobey you. You throw them in prison, they convert the jailer, right? You whip them, and they rejoice to be allowed to suffer for Christ's sake. You stone them within an inch of their life, and they get up, and they go back into the city and preach again, right? Endurance like that simply has to win the long run, right? One of them dies, the next one comes to take his place, right? Her place. They come right back in again. They just keep coming. This is why the Great Commission Church doesn't have to be the most educated, the most popular, the coolest, the trendiest, the wealthiest, even the most articulate. None of that stuff really matters. They just got to suffer well. You just got to get the gospel right and suffer well. And, you see, and you'll see a, an audience, right? You'll see an audience. It communicates uh, something about a, a genuineness and an authenticity that you must really believe what you say you believe. It's not just words. This means something to you. You're willing to suffer for this? That's why when we talk about planting churches. I mean, that may sound, still may sound strange to you. We're going to talk more and more about that. Um, but th- this is why the, the, the presence uh, with local churches in specific communities is so much more valuable than having some commuter, um, you know, mega church that people drive to. Why? Because in a local church, in a local community, the Christians live there and they live out the life of Jesus. They suffer for Jesus and so they gain an audience because we know you and we know what you say, but we see how you live and we want to know what, what you're saying now, Right? But if they just drive it in, they don't witness anything. They just see a service on a Sunday. You see? That's why local churches in specific geographical locations are super important to plant and start because that's going to reach that community because Christians are going to move in or live in that area, right? Um, there's a book. I brought it with me here. There's only one left in the bookstore. But if you're interested in a story like that, there's my favorite one. It's called The Live in Peace uh, by Mark Gornick. And it, this is like a little story about a, about a couple of uh, guys and their families moved into this this part of Baltimore, inner city kind of area that was really poor, really broken. Uh, in so many ways, they moved in, they planted a church, and the other people moved in with them. And slowly that whole community, people came to Jesus, and the whole community changed, right? Everything about the community, not just the spiritual life of it, but everything about it uh, began to shift because Christians were willing to move into a geographical location and live, right, among the people, with the people, because they get to witness things like this, uh, like the suffering Uh, John Piper put it this way. He said, loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in the world than all worship and prayer. It's true. Because people can look at our worship and prayer and be like, yeah, that's just kind of what they do. 
That's their thing, right? That's their way they, you know, find peace and get on with life or whatever. They give all kinds of assessments to our worship and prayer. But suffering, joyfully accepted, for Christ's sake, you can't, you can't quantify that. You can't put a label on that, right? That's something that's radically different. It's such an important part of the Great Commission Church that literally every page of the book of Acts, you're going to find people suffering. It just continues on throughout the book. Paul even makes it a kind of mantra. Did you notice earlier on in reading, look at chapter 14, verse 22. Here was his kind of statement he would make. He'd go to churches that he planted, or when he planted a church, here's what he would tell them. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through what? Many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's not saying suffer so that you get into the kingdom. It's just saying that the, the path to the kingdom, the path to heaven is going to be one of suffering. You're going to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer, right? So I mean, that's, what it's like, that's how he, he would teach everyone this, like over and over. So as we, as we kind of finish up and wrap up this time this morning, I want you to notice that these characteristics of a Great Commission church shouldn't be shocking to us because they're the very same thing we have seen in the study and life of the person of Jesus. We go back and read and we, we find that what the early church is doing here and what they're doing, they're planting churches, they're living out exactly how Jesus lived out his life, right? Jesus was sent from the Father. Read the book of uh, uh, the Gospel of John. He says it over 30 times. The Father sent me, the Father sent me. And then he changes it, John 20, 21, right? As the Father sent me now, what am I going to do? So I send you. You're going to go out like I was sent. So I was sent. You've seen me live this sent life <laughs> from the Father. Now you go live a sent life from me. And that's exactly what is happening in, in uh, the book of Acts. Then consider, obviously, Jesus served, right? This was, he even talked about this in, in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so his followers, because they are Christians, little Christs, Jesus' followers, they took on the life of Jesus, right? They sought to serve the communities they were in. And then consider, obviously, the, the church suffered, Jesus suffered as the very center of the gospel, right? He suffered, he bled, he died for our sin. Like Paul rising from the ashes, right? Jesus rose from the grave. But unlike Paul, Jesus actually did die, right? And conquered death and sin on the cross and through the grave and rose again. And the sent, serving, suffering, resurrected Jesus is what formed and motivated the Great Commission Church as we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Over the last six years, I have sought to teach you this. I have sought to help form this at Parkside. Matter of fact, the first sermon I ever gave here, if you were here at the time, um, was Acts chapter 1. It was actually the very first sermon I ever preached. And um, we preached the gospel. We've helped set things in order so that we can be a Great Commission church. And listen, and you've heard us say this, if you've been here a while, you've experienced this, we have been this before, right? Traditionally speaking, we have been a Great Commission church. We have sent out um, we, we have planted or revitalized, and I'm not saying it's to brag on us for this. I just want you to understand that we come from a long, good tradition of this that we can pick back up again. We planted at least 12 churches, in the, or revitalized churches in the greater Indianapolis area, representing over 10,000 members of local churches in the greater Indianapolis area. Isn't that crazy? You, you, that's why you duplicate yourself, because it's so much more effect of reaching people. Um, and many of these churches have planted more churches themselves but it's been, it's been a while, right? We've got to get back to being that Great Commission church. And one way of doing that is through us, and we've mentioned this too, and I want to show you a little video of this, is that we have been a part of helping get started over this past year or two uh, this organization called Plant Indy, 
where very unique, very unique thing is taking place. Because this doesn't happen often. Remember I told you at the intro that most churches are chucking rocks at each other. We have, part of this organization we've helped get started, have joined with a dozen or so churches together to plant churches all throughout the greater Indianapolis area, right? That, that's a, that just doesn't happen, okay, very often. And, uh, and so I want to show you this video, actually. We, the cool thing is that um, the president of, um, of uh, Plant India is in our congregation right now. It's actually Pastor Justin. <laughs> and uh, is the president of the organization, so we have an opportunity to spearhead and guide this entire organization to see churches planted. So if you draw attention to the screen, I want you to, to see this, please.
Isn't that exciting? Um, that brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, I love church planting because I, I love the fact of seeing people coming to Jesus. And, um, and that's what we're doing. And uh, that's really exciting for us. And so we'll, we'll be talking about that a lot. And, uh, and again, working on that, being that great commission church. Uh, as we go to communion, I want you to take opportunity to, uh, one of the things when we take communion together, we do it to remember the Lord Jesus, right? He's the reason why we plant churches. He's the reason why we're here today. Um, and we take uh, the bread and the juice and just as a remembrance of his body and blood broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. One of the elements of that is that Jesus tells us in, in 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 to do it and to do it to proclaim him until he comes, right? And, um, and so as we take communion together today, I want you just to consider your place with God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to do that. We'll have some quiet time. But I want you to consider specifically today as a kind of a different kind of way of looking at it is, is to take a moment to, to pray for us as a church corporately and for yourself individually that we would be that great commission church, that we would see people come to know Jesus and what part maybe you can play in that um, individually in your family and, uh, and just to pray for us as, as pastors as we continue to, to strive to kind of direct and lead uh, in that direction. Um, so we're going to take some quiet time here, um, and as you're ready uh, to take, uh, you can. If you don't know Jesus, if it's all as weird to you, like planting churches, what are you talking about? Why start them? We'd love to talk to you about, about that, about, talk to you about Jesus behind the rock wall uh, when we're done this morning here in a few minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for, um, thank you for this Plant Indy project, uh, this ministry, this mission that has been established. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. Um, it is something, you're up to something, God. It's so exciting to see because it just is rare to find churches being willing to join together to have these kind of beliefs in the sovereignty of God and the gospel-centered preaching and pastor-led churches and congregations. Lord, it just is a, a unique opportunity to have. And um, we pray you continue to grow our organization, continue to, to add more churches to that and to see more churches planted and see more people come to know you. We thank you for the opportunity to reflect uh, on the book of Acts. We thank you for the book of Acts. It teaches how us, all this got started. And God, I pray that you would help us to be a part of that uh, tradition, that, uh, that journey that, uh, that has been happening for the last 2,000 years, that Parkside would continue to carry that um, torch, to carry that baton forward, and to pass it on to the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.